Good morning. My name is Pastor John, the associate pastor here at East Shore. Today we're finally going to get to a battle in our study through the book of Joshua. And some of you may have been waiting for this. And I understand some of those feelings. Because in history class or social studies class when I was in school, it always seemed to take forever for us to actually get to talking about a war. And then when we finally got there, we barely spent any time on them. It felt like we spent weeks building a model of a farmhouse or of a plantation and then only a few days on something like the Civil War. And as a young adolescent boy, I remember being upset that we weren't talking about fighting in battles, the stuff that I considered to be the exciting things. Now, as I've matured, I recognize the terrible human cost and suffering of war. And wars are not a thing to take joy in. But still, my fascination with them remains. Because people have been killing each other since just after the beginning. But if you study wars you begin to notice how similar they all really are. The emotions and the reasons for war really don't change at the deepest level. We fight wars today for really the same reasons that our ancestors did. Things like land or power, maybe concepts like freedom or safety and security. Although the methods of a war have certainly changed, the reasons for it The loss of life that war brings, these things have not changed. War never changes. But today, today we're going to read a passage where God intervenes in a human conflict. God shows his grace and power in a war in an amazing way. War may never change, but God saves. He uses strange strategies to bring sweet victory. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua 6. If you want to use your red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on page 119. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter right now. We're going to read portions of it, but I'd like us to back up and actually start in chapter 5 to kind of get the context of what's going on here. So if you're there in Joshua 6 or the end of chapter 5, and if you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I will read portions of our passage. I'm going to be starting in Joshua 5, verse 13, and then I'll read some of the verses kind of jumping around chapter 6. Joshua 5, 13, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then it keeps going into chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. 
Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a loud blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. Now I'm jumping to verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time, when the priest had blown their trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Look at verse 20. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. I'm going to skip 21 for now and go to 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house. Bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. They brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And finally, verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame was in all the land. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you that you are the God we can praise and shout our praise to you. Right now, we need your presence so we can understand and rightly apply your word. It's a familiar story, but may you apply it to our lives in a way that impacts us today. Lord, lead us to trust you even when we do not know what you are doing. Thank you for giving us victory over sin and death. Thank you for your salvation. Help us to trust in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. May he increase may we decrease. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's consider where we are again in scripture. We're continuing our series through the book of Joshua. This is a book about God fulfilling his promises to his people. He's giving them a land of their own. They've spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt, but then God raised up a man named Moses. Moses led God's people to freedom. We're years later, and God has commissioned a new man, Joshua, to guide his people into their new home, into the promised land. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how the Lord miraculously held back the flooded waters of the Jordan River so that his people could move forward into their new home. Now they're camped about two miles from the city of Jericho, which is the first city they need to conquer. They've waited in obedience. We talked last week about how they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And God stopped providing them with manna. 
It's now time for them to take the promised land. At the very end of chapter 5, we read it today, Joshua meets the commander of the army of the Lord, the one who will bring his people to victory. However, as we turn now into chapter 6, we see that this commander, he has a very strange strategy for defeating Jericho, a very strange strategy. Let me read the first half or so of chapter 6. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the Ark, while the trumpets blew continually. Verse 10, But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on. They blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Now first here, we're told Jericho is shut up. The gates are securely barred. They're tightly locked. No one is going in or going out. The citizens of Jericho are prepared for a siege. There's evidence of a spring inside the city walls. They probably prepared stores of grain. They could hold out for months against the Israelites. So Joshua and his people, they were probably expecting a very long siege. But instead, God is going to reveal a strange and very surprising strategy for taking the city. The heavenly commander of the Lord's armies, he addresses Joshua again in verse 2. He says that he has given Jericho its king, and all of its fighting men of valor, its warriors, he has given them into the Israelites' hands. Here, God is repeating a promise that was made by Joshua's predecessor, Moses. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses said, He will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. 
No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. So his language here is he says, God will give their kings. But look at God's wording. Look at verse 2. He doesn't just say that he will give. His words are, I have given. Or your translation might have, I have delivered. He's speaking as though it's already accomplished. And he does this because the end result is not in doubt. God's decision has already been made. And the citizens of Jericho knew this. They knew that Israel was going to receive their land. In Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, we talked about how the Canaanite Rahab says to the spies who come to her house, she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Look at that. She's using the same language we see here. The Lord has given them the land. There is no ability to resist. God wants Joshua to know that the armies and the defenses of the Canaanites are powerless against the Lord. As long as the Lord was with his people, they could not be defeated. God then tells Joshua his strategy in verses 3 through 5. What's going to happen is the armed men of war are going to march around Jericho one time over six days. In addition, he says there are seven priests there to carry seven ram's horns. They're going to go before or in front of the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to march ahead of it. And then on the seventh day, the company is going to march around the city seven times. Then the priest will blow their horns. The people will give a great and loud shout. They're to shout as loud as they can. And when they do this, God says the city wall will collapse It will fall down flat, or it will fall under itself. And then the Israelites can charge forward and take the city. I don't know if I would have done this, but Joshua believes, trust God, and he leads the people to immediately go forward with God's plan. He passes on these instructions to the Israelites. He tells them to advance, to go forward in God's directions. And what he does is he assigns some of his soldiers to go in front of the ark. There's soldiers in front. Then he puts the seven priests with the horns. Then the people carrying the ark. And then he puts the rest of the soldiers behind them as a rear guard. And just as Joshua commands, the people begin marching around the city. Now Joshua tells them, I pointed out in verse 10, they're not to shout. They're not to make a war cry until he tells them to. In fact, they're not to raise their voices. They're not to talk at all until that seventh day. It also shows us it's very organized. The people are not wandering aimlessly around the wall. They are marching in a solemn procession. And so that first day, Joshua causes the soldiers and the ark to circle the city, and then they return to their camp. And then it tells us they get up early the next morning, the priest pick up the ark, and they get back to it. The priest continually keeps sounding their trumpets while the soldiers march in silence. And they do this same thing for six days. Now, as I read it, you probably heard a lot of repetition. They say the same thing over and over again. And the author does this because he wants us to be very clear about what happened here. There was a repeated about seven, seven priests, seven trumpets. Maybe this is a reference to what some people call the number of completion But more importantly, this focus, every time it says those sevens, it's talking 
about what's happening to the Ark of the Covenant. There's also a lot said about trumpets, because trumpets were to be an important part of the Israelites' worship. Earlier in Scripture, in the book of Numbers, Numbers 10, 9 and 10, God told them, when you go to war in your land against the adversary who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets. And by doing that, you may be remembered before the Lord your God, and you shall be saved from your enemies. But the trumpets weren't just for war, because on the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. By blowing the trumpets, they shall be a reminder of you before your God. And God says, I am the Lord your God. And both of these uses of the trumpets are happening in our text. The trumpets of war sound as they march, and the trumpets of gladness when they shout and God brings down the city walls. We also see in Scripture that trumpets will sound when Christ returns to reign and rule. In Revelation 11.5, we read that, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There was a loud voice in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, despite all this talk about trumpets, the most important part of this description is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was the gold box. It represented God's presence with his people. Where the box rested, that represented where God's presence was. Where the box moved, that stood for God's movement. And if we look at our text in these instructions, the Ark was in the middle of the soldiers going around the city. Remember, there's soldiers in front, there's the priest with the horns, there's the Ark, there's soldiers in the back. The Ark is in the middle with the priest blowing, drawing attention to it. It would have been the focus of the people of Israel. It would have been the focus of the people of Jericho too. The symbol of God's presence was the key to their movement. And the point in all of this is God was with his people and he would have to bring them the victory. Now, if we take a minute though, and we step back, we have to admit that this would have looked very strange to the people of Jericho. There's a silent army marching around their city with seven men eerily blowing their trumpets and no other sound. It was probably either irritating or maybe humorous to the people of Jericho, perhaps a mixture of both. Now, our text doesn't tell us this, but it's not a stretch to imagine them taunting the Israelites. It probably wasn't as brash as the way VeggieTales pictures this event. Familiar with that children's thing, but perhaps it was. And so we'll take a moment to talk about it. In the VeggieTales version called Josh and the Big Wall, the citizens of Jericho say, keep walking, but you won't knock down our wall. Keep walking, but she isn't going to fall. It's plain to see your brains are very small to think walking will be knocking down our wall. And and let's be honest, marching around a city instead of attacking it, that's a very foolish thing to do. Think about how the Israelites must have felt. Remember, they walked around this city 13 times over the course of seven days. One time for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. Imagine if you did that. By the last day or two, they could probably recognize every single stone in that wall. Every day they marched, and every day nothing changed. But they were faithful to pursue their course. They waited for the fulfillment 
of God's plan. Even though God had a strange strategy, Joshua and the Israelites were willing to trust him. And you know, sometimes God does strange things in our lives too. Last week, we talked about the book of Isaiah and chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God looks at the world differently than we do. He has a different perspective. He sees the world from a different vantage point. And as I thought about this, it reminded me of something I saw this week. During the past few weeks or two, if I have a minute or two to channel check, I, I found myself watching the Tour de France, the bike race that happens through France every summer. At one point, the camera showed a sunflower field, kind of like the picture up there in the left, and the bike riders going through a sunflower field. Now, at eye level, they're pretty flowers, but there's nothing very special about that. And I don't have a picture of it, but then the camera pulled back, kind of pulled up, it may have been a drone or something like that, to reveal that these sunflowers were planted in the shape of a bike jersey to kind of celebrate the event and had a message about it's the Tour de France. It kind of reminded me how something we're a bit more familiar with here in central Pennsylvania, corn mazes. And people plant corns in shapes that you can't see close up. When you pull back, the picture becomes clear. If you were by this sunflower field or you go to one of those corn fields, it doesn't look any different to you. But with a different perspective, a different vantage point, we see it looks different. There's a different perspective. God's work in the world, his work in our lives may seem strange to us. It may seem strange to those who do not know him. The Apostle Paul knew this, and he knew how foolish God's ways seemed to non-believers. He wrote about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, the word of the cross, the message of God's word, it is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. God works at a different pace and in a different way than we might desire. We might want to see him do a great work in perhaps our church or maybe a great work in our lives. But if something great is going to happen in our lives or in our church, that's something God has to bring about. We cannot rush him. We cannot manipulate him into doing what we want when we want him to. He must stand at the center of all our victories. We will not find success if we push him to the side. We are to confidently trust in him, pursue what he has called us to do. We're to daily live for him, to share his truth with others. We may be wearied by the struggles and the pains of life. God calls us to continue in faithful obedience, because his victory will come. And that's why our passage turns to a scene of sweet victory. Sweet victory. Listen to verses 15 through 21. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. 
and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron, they are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Verse 20, so the people shouted. The trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Joshua, the Israelites, arise at daybreak on this seventh day, so they can complete their seven-lap circuit. And after that seventh time around Jericho, the priests blow a loud blast on the trumpets, and Joshua tells the people to shout, because the Lord has given them the city. He's so confident that the Lord is going to bring them this victory. He even tells them what they're supposed to do after the walls come down. He says everything in the city is to be completely destroyed. It's to be doomed or devoted to destruction. The only people who are to be spared are those in Rahab the prostitute's house because she hid and protected the Israelite spies. This command for complete destruction, it's known in the Old Testament as the ban. It was a very extreme measure to show God's holiness. In fact, it was only used for three of the cities that the Israelites conquered. By destroying supplies, materials, vessels, and articles, and even peoples who were connected to false religion, God is protecting the holiness of his people. God alone brought his people to victory, so he demands that everything in the city be devoted to him. It's either to be destroyed or it's to be consecrated, set apart for use in the Lord's holy treasury. Now, I I know on the surface, if that sounds harsh to you, well, we're going to talk more about that. We're going to talk more about all the killing in the book of Joshua in two weeks. But in the meantime, for today, Joshua tells the people to keep away, to abstain from the spoil of Jericho, because to take any of it would be to steal directly from the Lord. Everything in Jericho was a curse. It was to be devoted to destruction. Disobeying this command would bring destruction and trouble on Israel. And unfortunately, not everyone heeded Joshua's words. But we'll get to that in a few weeks. This command reminds us that while God does not need anything from us, He has given us gifts. He's given us blessings to use for Him and to use for His glory. God is the creator of this world. He owns everything in it, but he still lovingly uses us, those who are his people. He uses us to accomplish his purpose in the world. If we know him, then we belong to him. Living for ourselves or choosing to oppose him, that's foolishness. Well, finally, finally in verse 20, it happens. The people shout, the walls collapse, and the city is captured. And the Israelites faithfully devote the city to destruction. It is essential reading this that we recognize God is the one giving the victory here. 
We see this throughout this text. Verse 2, God says, I have given Jericho into your hand. Verse 16, Joshua said, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Verse 27, the Lord was with Joshua. He gets credit for the win. The ark was in the middle of the people. God was in the midst of the Israelites. He gave them the victory. Now, if you grew up in church, you might be familiar with the song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho, or perhaps you know as Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. See on the screen, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. It's a very catchy tune, but, you know, it, it kind of misses the point of the story. Because Joshua didn't really fight the battle of Jericho. God did. Now, to be sure, Joshua was a great man, but he did not bring down Jericho's walls. That's something God did. I've even heard some pastors, they'll cleverly use the God's Hebrew name, and so they'll rename this song, Jehovah Fought the Battle of Jericho. Okay, (laughs) that's a little better. In reality, Joshua, he just walked around the city a bunch of times. The actual fighting in this verse, for all I talked at the beginning about, we're finally at a war and a battle, the, the only fighting in the verse is one verse, in verse 20. And most of that verse is about the people shouting, the walls blowing down, and it's really just the second half. The people went up into the city, every man straight before him, they captured the city. No weapons were used by the Israelites until that time. So this is more a religious event than it is a military action. The emphasis is on God bringing down the walls of the city. Jericho is the first fruits. It's the down payment on God's promise to give his people a land of their own. God and God alone gave them the victory. The only role the Israelites have in this battle is faithful obedience. And you know, the New Testament brings this out. In Hebrews 11, around verse 30, we read, It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days, and the walls came crashing down. Joshua and the Israelites trusted that God would bring down the walls, and he did. And that means for us that God's presence is our assurance. It's our foundation that he will bring us victory too. God gives his people victory in their constant battles with sin. He gives them victory in the task that he calls them to. Today, he equips those of us who are his people for the task of making disciples, of calling, raising up, training followers of him. This is expressed in Scripture in the Great Commission from Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, How can we do this? Jesus says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He is with us. We can be confident he will enable us to make disciples. We saw that video earlier today about who's your one. We're picking someone to pray for, someone to share God's truth with. God's the one who gives us the ability to do that. That should give us confidence to share the good news with everyone we meet because God will work through us to bring some of them to him. Pastor Charles Spurgeon encourages us, we must keep on fighting for Christ and fighting for Christ every day. It's not talking about a war or, you know, a fist fight. We do that by loving him, by worshiping him, by living for him, 
and by sharing him with others. Brothers and sisters, fight for your Lord. Make him known. We can share about the Lord because of the glorious truth that God saves. God saves. Listen to verses 22 through 27. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house. Bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. This is lovely because in the middle of this story that's all about destruction and death, we have a wonderful picture of God's grace. Now, we briefly talked about these verses a few weeks ago, but here we're seeing the spy's promise to Rahab fulfilled. Back in Joshua 2, verses 12 and 14, we read this. Rahab says to the spies, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. You'll give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. You will deliver our lives from death. And the spies agree. The men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Today, in our passage, Joshua is telling the spies to keep their promise, to bring Rahab and her family out of Jericho. And this is an incredible moment, because Rahab is a Canaanite. She should be destroyed along with the rest of Jericho. But, but she became captivated by the God of Israel. She decided to trust in him. And just as the Israelites' trust went before God's work in bringing down the wall, Rahab's faith saved her and her family. In the New Testament, we read, By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, she was not killed with those who were disobedient. This doomed Canaanite was saved. Her relationship with God saved her life. Her faith in God was proven to be true through her actions. In James 2, 25 and 26, we read, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified, proven to know God by her works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. This is how James applies it. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Her faith in God was expressed through her action in hiding the spies. 
she became a part of the Israelites. She would become an ancestor not only of King David, but also of Jesus Christ. Our text tells us that the Israelites put Rahab's family with them. It notes that they first had to be outside the camp because they were ceremonially unclean, but they were safe with God's people. And they must have gone through that ritual cleansing because verse 25 finds them living among the Israelites. In fact, they're living among them to the day that the book was written. These Canaanites were welcomed among God's people. A pastor named Rhett Dodson, he makes an interesting observation. He says, what Israel did for Rahab reflected what God was doing for Israel. Israel provided rest for Rahab and her family, just as the Lord was doing for his family. In this story of one person, we have the story of a whole people. God saved Rahab from destruction. His people brought her into God's family. I know I used this picture once already in the PowerPoint, but I think the artist did a good job here of showing Rahab and her family coming out of the ruined city and the joy in their faces of being a part of God's people. So God saved Rahab, but God also saved the Israelites from the destruction of slavery. He brought them into their new home, just like Rahab and her family found a new home. There's just two verses left in our chapter. Joshua takes a moment to celebrate God's work in saving his people in verse 26. The Israelites had been told that the cities they devoted to destruction were to be destroyed for good. And so Joshua lays, he pronounces a curse on this ruined city. He invokes God's power, challenges the Israelites to avoid undertaking to rebuild Jericho. And he predicts that the person who rises up and tries to rebuild the city will lose both his oldest and his youngest son. And sadly, this curse would come true. Hundreds of years later, King Ahab of Israel led his people away from God. He led his people to reject God's word. 1 Kings 16 tells us in his days, in Ahab's days, Hael Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. God was faithful both to his promises and to his curses. But fortunately, we end this chapter on a very positive note about what a saving God can do. Verse 27 tells us the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame and reputation was known throughout the land of Canaan. God's presence, the display of his power, led the news of this victory to spread. The most important part of this verse, the key to Joshua's success, is that the Lord was with him. And God had promised to be with Joshua all the way back in Joshua 1.5. God said, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our passage today shows us what this looks like. Everyone in Israel and everyone in Canaan could see what the Lord was doing through Joshua. And if God's presence is with us, well, then we will find success too. Now, that doesn't mean success in business or success on the battlefield 
or even success in sports or hobbies. It means that our lives will be useful for eternity. God will use us to make an eternal difference in his kingdom. Friends, the battle of Jericho is a reminder that we all need to be saved. In this chapter, God's people needed to be saved from their enemies in Jericho. And God worked on their behalf to bring down the enemy's walls, to give his people the victory. God's people need that victory today, too. Believers, we need God to save us from our trials, our battle with our old sin nature. So if we daily submit to God, if we come under the authority of his word, then he will work in our lives. If we trust him, we trust in his power to work in our lives, he will give us the victory. He will save us for his glory. Now, we may struggle our entire lives with a particular issue or a particular temptation, but in the end, God will give his people victory. It will either come at the release of death when we come to be with him or through a process of God's loving grace. You can trust God. You can trust him to do what is best. It may be extremely hard, but it will be worth it. If you do not know Jesus, though, you need to be saved from your sin. Your rebellion against God has separated you from his love. It's earned you the judgment of eternal suffering. Like the citizens of Jericho, you are positioned to be devoted to destruction. But that doesn't have to be the end of your story. What God did for Rahab and her family, he can do that for you too. He can reach down to you in grace. He can pull you up from the coming destruction. Call out to him. Cling to him in faith and trust. Friends, you cannot save yourself. God's grace alone brings salvation. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works. You didn't earn it because then you could boast. Rahab did not earn her rescue. God's grace saved Rahab. He changed her heart, led her to help and to join his people. God can change your heart too. He can safely bring you among his people today. If you turn from your sin and you turn toward God in faith and trust, then you too can be saved. We do not know when our end will come. We do not know when the world's end will come. So please ask about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Every true Christian would be thrilled to share that with you. Today is the day to ask, to figure that out. Now, for all of us, is the time to celebrate this God whose strange strategy brings sweet victory. Let us praise this God who saves because he alone is worthy.